Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Alex? So in this episode, we've got Tulsi Gabbard in an interview with NPR where she talks about all of the issues that she's faced on the campaign trail, but then also about how her views on certain important issues have evolved and changed over the years. You'll also hear about some of the allegations about herself and her campaign being propped up by Russia and how she feels about the Mueller report and Russian intervention in the election. Now, in this first clip here, we're going to get to exactly how difficult it is to be running for office and how that prepares her for the presidency. Josh and I sat down with Representative Gabbard in a house a little outside of town. So uh, where are we? Is this is this an Airbnb? Is this a house? It is a uh, uh, supporter's friend's house. Okay, cool. So let's let's do this thing. Welcome to the NPR Politics Podcast. Thank you. Do you have strategies for dealing with, you know, parades yeah. and other... I mean, the, the campaign trail can be rough. Uh, well, it's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's... Uh, no, it was great. We were uh, on the 4th of July. We started out in Amherst, then went to Merrimack and ended up in Laconia. And uh, it was a good thing I had my bags in the car with me because after each parade, my clothes top to bottom were drenched. Oh, my God. Uh, so did a did a quick changeover after each parade. Uh, stay hydra- stayed very hydrated. Um, but look, I'm from Hawaii. We're used to heat and humidity and uh, serving in Iraq in the summer with full battle rattle, body armor. Uh, it's relative. So, Congresswoman, in the town that I live in, in New Hampshire, the uh, largest political sign in town is yours. Uh, you'll be pleased <laughs> to hear. It's on the property of a libertarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you were once vice chair of the DNC, but you've been regularly praised by figures on the right and far right, including David Duke, whose praise you denounced, uh, but also people like Pat Buchanan, Ron Paul, uh, Steve Bannon. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, what we're seeing and what we're hearing from people across New Hampshire and in different states across the country is people from across party lines are coming to our town halls and they're drawn to the message that I'm bringing and the leadership that I'm offering uh, in this bid to run for president, to serve as commander in chief. So one of the things we really hear from Gabbard and how she addresses these points is that she has this strategy that no matter what someone asks her, She's going to lower her energy level, pause for a moment, and then pretend it's as though they asked her something completely differently. And she just responds with the same quality of voice tone 
exactly the same way every single time. So she has this talking point that she's been trying to get get across, which is it's all relative. So do you have strategies for dealing with pain, with parades? This can be tough. Well, it's all relative. And then we hear later on that that was a little bit of a setup because in a way she later on comes back to her experiences in Hawaii. You know, I was drenched, but I'm from Hawaii. We're used to that. And from being in Iraq, well, it's all relative. So what she's doing here is painting herself as this person who is very tough, very street uh, savvy, very worthy to be in a position of power. And even when she describes the office in which she's going to be holding, she says it's the presidency, but then she says to be the commander in chief. And notice how she really emphasizes that. This is her whole message is I'm going to be a good commander in chief. All the social policy, all of the fiscal policy, all of the other things that people talk about, you know, outside of talking about wars, because she talks quite a bit about that. That's all second to her being a strong commander in chief. And she really leans on that military background. Yeah, what you'll see a lot from Tulsi Gabbard and really all the candidates is that they're just trying to make their name. They're really trying to pick out something that's going to really set themselves apart from the other candidates. And Tulsi really does this great, right? She's the only candidate who has served in war uh, on the Democrat and Republican side. So she's able to pick out something really concrete that sets her different from the other candidates. And you see that even with, you know, uh, with Yang, who's talking about his business stuff, or Biden, who tries to, you know, subconsciously imply that he's the only one who can win. Um, And, you know, all the candidates somehow come up with their one way of messaging their one distinct feature. And so here we've got her with, you know, being battle hardened, um, you know, out there in that battle rattle. She uses a little bit of, you know, military terminology to sort of, you know, uh, pick at those people who may, might have some military experience or people who might be, you know, military adjacent that, you know, they're going to pick up on these keywords and they're going to pay extra close attention and be like, oh, that's somebody who knows what they're talking about or that's somebody that I can relate to. And so now she's able to build that connection with the listeners um, and she, you're going to hear her go back and back and back to Hawaii and being part of the military throughout this interview. Now, in the second question that NPR then asks her, they just outright say, well, the largest political sign in town is yours. It's on the property of a libertarian. You were once vice chair of the DNC. You've been regularly praised by figures on the right and far right, including David Duke, whose praise that you denounced, but also by Pat Buchanan, Steve Bannon, etc. Why do you think that is? Now, just like when we were talking about the moderator's questions in the first and second Democratic debates, notice that this question from NPR is so heavily biased and it's really trying to get at something. And so what NPR gets out of this is that people can say, well, you know what? They asked her the tough questions. They asked her about the important thing, but it's really a setup question to be able to frame her allegiances one way or the other and to really put her in a box of where she is politically. 
And we're going to hear this in NPR's questions later on, is that what they're implying is you're not really a Democrat. You're actually a Republican in disguise. And so why is it that your supporters are praising you? But can a politician only accept support from those who are in the same political spectrum as them? And to what degree do a person's supporters actually imply something about their policy? Well, that's up in the air, but it really puts the politician in a really tough spot. Yeah, I think this is really a great way that the NPR interviewers here try to push the candidate to answer some really tough questions. So again, throughout the interview, you're going to hear questions like this where they frame it in a very like sort of adversarial way to, um, you know, get the candidate to push them out of their box and to get them to answer even more pointed questions. Um, now, with Tulsi in particular here, she does this great way of being able to, you know, dodge all of them. Um, and her go to tactic, it seems like in many of these questions is to, you know, almost use some whataboutism and to almost point out, you know, other issues and to, um, you know, distract from the issues that are specific to her candidacy. So you're going to hear this again and again, where she pivots sort of away from the specifics about herself and her campaign to broaden the question and to point out other things that we should be focused on. Now, how she handles that then as they're asking her this question is that she goes into a technique that we've talked about before. It's a technique that comes from neurolinguistics, which is called pacing current experience and from hypnosis. And she says, well, what we're seeing and hearing across the country is that people are coming to the town halls and they're coming together. Well, again, this is very thematic and she's naming exactly what the people are doing, what we're seeing and hearing, who's seeing it, who is hearing it, who are these people we're talking about, but they're coming to town halls. And it's very vague, and yet it's hard to argue with because she is holding town halls. But notice how she's not really saying very much. And then she says they're coming together. Now, this is moving back into that liberal framing of togetherness, which a lot of liberals really like, which is, well, we like that closeness. We like that togetherness. And so it goes back to Obama's thing of we, you know, yes, we can. We're going to do it together we're going to do it with all of us so we're going to be more inclusive we're going to allow people to come into the u.s and not reject them or exclude them for example on uh, immigration policy and she goes and she hits that point but then immediately afterwards she changes back to that military frame talking about those regime change wars and this is one of those key phrases that she's saying that no one else is saying. She says this because some people maybe have talked about this particular point. And as she says that phrase now, certain people are going to light up inside of their mind and go, wait, she's talking to me. She's talking about what I want to talk about. Now, in this next clip here, we're going to be talking about how NPR asks her about Justin Amash and how he is at odds with his own party and then basically asks her, hey, how do you fit into the Democratic Party? So listen here again as NPR is framing her within where she is in the political spectrum. Let's take a listen to this one. I want to shift to potential failures of America's two-party system. Uh, Justin Amash announced he's leaving the Republican Party decrying 
our political system saying modern politics is trapped in what he describes as a partisan death spiral. You've also decried the party system as being rigged. Do you agree with your congressional colleague's assessment? Uh, look, he's he's um, had a lot of challenges within his own party, and, and frankly, I wasn't surprised uh, by his announcement. Um, I think that the power that the political parties hold um, gets in the way of... Uh, I say the outsized power that the political parties hold um, can often be used in the wrong way to to uh, squelch our democracy and dissenting voices even within uh, our own party. We saw that in the 2016 elections, some at the local level and some at the national level. Uh, and I think it it is counter to what we stand for in this democracy where we can have different ideas and different um, ways that we want to approach things and solve problems, and that should be welcomed. Have you ever considered leaving the Democratic Party? No. No. I've been working for reforms within our party. After 2016, actively working uh, to try to get these rule changes within the DNC, um, open primaries, I think encourage participation, uh, getting rid of superdelegates, taking that power away from the very few, and making sure that Every single person's voice is heard as we make this very important choice of who will be our president and commander in chief. And I think there there uh, are continued changes and improvements that we should strive for to strengthen both our party and to strengthen our democracy. Yeah. So what you hear again is she does a little bit of that. What about ism? Right. So she's asked about Amash and whether he thinks that it's rigged. And her response is to you know point out how you know he's got a lot of problems in his own party. Um, and so she's really, you know, trying to distract and there's like some other thing that we should be focused on, we should be talking about. Now, when she's asked about uh, considering leaving the Democratic Party, you know, that's a rather pointed question and, and, and maybe not, I don't know, maybe not necessarily fair on the moderator's part. But, you know, when she's asked that, it, what they're really getting at is all of her complaints as a Bernie supporter in in 2016, 2015, uh, where, you know, she talked about how the whole primary system is rigged and, and how everything is wrong and going wrong with the party. She goes away from talking about her particular disagreements. And instead, she talks about something very tangentially related to it. So she, she's talking about the the reforming the Democratic Party. But you know, she's no longer talking about her disputes and, you know, all of her history with feuding with the Democratic Party anymore. So she's not really, she's not directly addressing the question, but she's still talking about the general topic um, in a very positive light because, you know, she can't just talk about negative things in this interview. She needs to wrap it in some sort of positivity. And so she wraps it in her positivity about the the progress with the superdelegates and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, it's a very tough question. And I agree, not completely fair on the moderator's part, because what they're doing is really forcing her into a position where they're pitting her against her own party. In other words, it's, well, have you considered leaving? What does that imply? It implies that she doesn't fit within the party. It's like if you were having a house party with someone and then you said, would you consider leaving the party? And it's like, (laughs) you know, this is the type of thing where they are asking her, you know, to do. And what she does is she answers it in that way that is very political. And again, notice how her voice tone stays the same. This is very practiced on her part because this must be a sensitive topic for her. 
But what does she suggest we do instead? Well, we need open primaries. We need to have superdelegates or to get rid of the superdelegates. And these are all things that will benefit her as a less popular candidate and give her more of a running or a shot at, you know, being able to achieve that. So that's what I found really, you know, interesting about this part. Now, in this next part here, in this next question that NPR is going to be asking her, this is going to be on the border. And they're going to be switching from a really difficult question for her, which is, do you think you should leave, to what's really a much easier question. Because it's very easy for just about any Democrat these days to come out with what seems to be a very reasonable position on kids at the border. So let's listen to this part. You recently visited the Homestead Migrant Detention Facility. You couldn't get in, uh, but yeah. you got up on one of the ladders and 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 looked in. Um, what would you do if you were president tomorrow yeah. to solve what is now very clearly a humanitarian crisis and a system like pushed beyond its ability to handle it? Yeah, it, it's it was heartbreaking. Uh, this has got to end. The atrocious conditions at these different detention camps for these kids. Um, is something that every one of us in this country should stand up and speak out about. It is unacceptable. As president, uh, tomorrow, we've got to do everything possible to get these kids back with their parents. I think that's the first and the most important thing. Uh, We've got to dedicate more resources, far more resources to deal with this humanitarian crisis um, that's happening here in our own country. Uh, And I think it's important that... um, we're shining a light on what is actually happening there at the border. And it speaks to, obviously, greater issues with our immigration policy, uh, with uh, how much more we can be doing to help provide support directly to people in the countries where so many people are fleeing uh, to help improve things for them there so they don't have to feel like they're in a position where they've got to walk uh over a thousand miles and make this treacherous journey, risking their own lives to escape something far worse. Um, so there, there are uh, many changes that need to be made to our immigration policy, both with what's at the border, how we're dealing with the border, as well as our broken legal immigration system. But I think this is an urgent crisis that has to be dealt with right away. So this is an interesting thing here is that the interviewer asks, what would you do if you're a president tomorrow to solve the migrant crisis? question. And notice how the entire answer that Gabbard gives does not include anything that she would actually do if she was president tomorrow. And instead, she does what, you know, a lot of candidates do on the stage or in interviews is focus on the problem. And so she talks at length about how it's heartbreaking and how this has got to end and all these things about, you know, the atrocious conditions for these kids Um, and she goes on and on and on about you know why they even come across the border and and all those issues but she provides no policy prescription she comes up with no solutions and then she sort of concludes it with like well and that's why we've got to solve this issue Uh, and so you know it's it's a great thing and like that's really going to resonate with a lot of people because people will agree with the problem but they might not be so ready to agree with a proposed solution. So if you're a candidate who doesn't want to alienate someone who's listening to you, the easiest way is to talk about the problem and how bad it is and never get to the solution and hope that they weren't paying attention and actually listening for a solution. 
Um, and that's what you sort of get here. Yeah, she's asked this question about the border, and really all she has to do is to tap into the emotions. And so we hear her talking about the kids and the parents. And what this is from a very base value level is this idea of what we do in this country is we protect the kids, number one. And we might also, let's say, protect the elderly. You know, that is, you know, Social Security and health care for elderly and these other types of programs in which we're doing. And as she starts to really lean on those types of issues, well, all of a sudden she doesn't need to have a more firm or concrete way of talking about this. And the thing about these type of interviews is that NPR really doesn't press her on any of this. They just give her a question and then it's, okay, go give me your political speech about this question. And, you know, tell me all of what it is that you want to know. And they're never really following up and saying to her, you know what, you didn't give us a policy prescription. Tell us what it is that you're actually going to do. You know, versus, you know, say things like I'm going to shine, a, you know, we're shining a light on this and making it so that people don't have to feel that they're going to take this treacherous journey escaping from something far worse. And it makes a lot of emotional logic, but she doesn't say a whole lot about what is what is happening. So when she says things like dedicate more resources, what is a resource far more resources? Does that mean only money? Does that mean people? Does that mean time? What does it mean by resources? And then she says this thing here in the middle, and it's happening. I'm not sure what she means by it's happening. Does she mean that resources are already being you know, dedicated? Because they did ask her, what are you going to do you know, about this? So if it's already happening, what are you going to do? And basically, what I get from that is, is that this is kind of a weak area for her. She really doesn't know what to say about this and, you know, whether she really has a a particular policy prescription for it. Now, in this next clip, we're going to be talking about the Mueller report and Russian interference in the election. Now, this is important because Tulsi Gabbard has been criticized a lot for not being tough enough on Russia. And in particular, shortly after William Barr came out with his summary of the Mueller report, Tulsi created a video that talked about how it cleared and completely exonerated President Trump. And so, you know, that opened a lot of questions as to whether or not she was being supported by Russia or whether she supports Russia. And so this line of questioning is very important um, to, you know, any American or or just the general trained listener and how she tries to distract um, or avoid questions like this. So take a listen here and see what you think. So the Mueller report um, had a had a lot in it, yeah. uh, including a, a lot about uh, efforts that Russia undertook to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And sort of the biggest thing there was its pretty effective strategy of spreading misinformation that aimed to divide Americans. Yeah. So if you're elected president of the United States, um, what would you do about that? Well, I think... We, uh, people who are running for office and elected leaders, as well as um, the American people at large, we have to be concerned with uh, any kind of disinformation campaign, any kind of interference, and be aware of what's happening. Uh, 
if we're aware of what's happening, you know, I, I trust the American people. They're not stupid. <laughs> they can see what's going on. And, and I think we've got to trust that, that they're going to be able to make the right decisions uh, for our country. Do you, I mean, it seems like there are, there are a lot of bots and other things yeah. still doing a lot of things yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, there, there's a whole, again, I think we've got to look at this problem uh, in the full scope that it is. So you've got other folks coming in and, and whether it's bots or putting out uh, false information or whatever it is, or you have people here at home who are doing the very same thing. Now we're dealing with uh, different algorithms, both on Facebook and Google. How are those being used either to squelch someone's message or to amplify another? Uh, these are all things I think we've all got to be extremely concerned about because ultimately it it um, uh, places the power into the hands of very few who have the ability to do these things and could end up influencing people in, in one way or another. All right. So in this next part here, we hear her being asked the question of if you were president, what would you do about Russia and the election? And she goes into this awareness thing. We need to be aware and if we're aware, I trust the American people, they're not stupid. And then she gives this kind of fake laugh. And if they know what's going on, they're going to be making the right decisions for our country. So wait a second, is it the American people who are making the right decisions or is it her as commander in chief who is going to be making those decisions? And this is really interesting because what she's doing is she's going very third person with this that one of the things that you learn when you're analyzing for example lie detection and statements um, from people who are uh, being looked at for crimes is that you find that one of the things that happens is that they'll shift tenses so they'll shift from first person to second person a third person they'll change the way in which they're saying it without seemingly noticing it and what she's saying here is all about what other people are going to be noticing and nothing about what she's going to be doing and is it enough really to be aware i would suggest that we're already aware we already have a full investigation that has gone into this. We know a great deal of things that Russia has been doing to interfere with our election system. Why is it that awareness is the answer and not some sort of action? She's very unclear on this right here. Yeah, so as a candidate who is being accused of being you know, propped up and supported by Russia by through bots and through you know social media, I mean... I dare you to just try to criticize her on Twitter because, you know, I've had the bots attack. Um, but uh, what she's saying here and her answer for what would you do about Russia interfering in our election? She's essentially saying nothing. Uh, actually, like she's saying that that there's no action we should take other than being aware that it's happening. And so she's saying that, oh, because Americans know what's going on, we don't actually need to do anything. I trust the American people. They're not stupid. Um, so she's saying that we should do nothing. And th I think that that's one, that's something that's very striking and something that perhaps should concern people is that there's a candidate running for president who says that we shouldn't really do anything other than think about the fact that it's happening. Um, so th that's number one. And then number two, when she's asked about all of the bots, um, she pivots into talking about, you know, we've got lots of, 
people doing lots of things and there's all this stuff going on and you know there might be people at home there might people be people abroad there might be people you know everywhere it might be the 400 pound man in his mother's basement like she's really doing this whataboutism where she is now sort of talking about like all of these other things that are happening but not answering the question about the russian bots propping her up or influencing the election she's just saying we got a lot of people doing a lot of stuff so we just need to be aware that a lot of stuff's happening um, and that's not really a satisfying answer or, or a solution or anything right here um, and you know it's really a fantastic way of her you know avoiding the tough question um, but at the same time it's like a listener that's not even that discerning a listener who's just paying attention generally can catch that she's being evasive here and not actually answering anything all right now in this next clip we're going to be getting to tulsi gabbard's formative years and her upbringing and the environment in which she was raised in and so we get to bring all the way back to what that was like let's take a listen to this part and we wanted to know more about where tulsi gabbard came from so NHPR's Josh Rogers asked her about her formative years. So is there an event or moment from your childhood that shapes how you see government? Growing up in Hawaii, uh, it may not surprise you that my playground was in the ocean and in the mountains and I uh, spent so much time just outside. And I think the thing that really made an impact on me about why I started thinking about how government works uh, was just going to the beach and paddling out to surf and seeing a lot of trash on the beach or in the water and, and getting kind of pissed off about it because this is, this is my home, you know, this is our playground. And so for me, that started with just trying to get my friends together and saying, hey, let's go and clean up the beach. So we'd go and do that on the weekends and then come back the next weekend. There's more trash there. I was, okay, well, this is something we can do, but uh, it's not enough. Ultimately, I started, uh, co-founded an environmental nonprofit uh, called Healthy Hawaii Coalition, thinking that if we could take this message to kids, elementary school kids, uh, across the state about why you shouldn't just throw your trash out the car window as you're driving down the street. And so I uh, wrote a skit called The Adventures of Water Woman. You made yourself a superhero. I made myself a superhero. I was the original Water Woman with a blue <laughs> cape and, and all. Did Water Woman have a catchphrase or some sort of call to arms? Gosh, or no, superpower? she didn't. But the, the, the superpower was Oily Al was going about his business every day and making the wrong choice one after the other after the other. And just in the nick of time, Water Woman just happened to be there and save the day and stop him from, you know, pouring his dirty car oil down the storm drain, knowing that that would get out to the fish and the marine life in the ocean. And it was just an incredible thing to, and it was so much fun to be in the classrooms with these kids and, you know, kind of see the light bulb go off in their eyes as they were like, oh yeah, these were things that they could relate to and why it was not a good thing. I read that you were super introverted. Did Extremely. Did Water Woman. In a crippling way. <laughs> <laughs> so did getting into that superhero suit, uh, let you come out? Maybe, you know, I, a fourth of five kids, I was by far the shyest and I didn't have a problem with it. I just like keep my head in the books, go surfing, hang out with my friends. No big deal. I don't have to talk to anybody else. Uh, so I, the first time we went out and did this play, uh, I was very, very nervous, but then I got into it and I started having fun and you know, how, how can you not have fun with a bunch of kids? You got into politics young, as you mentioned, yeah. and, um, you've described being raised in a socially conservative 
setting. Mm-hmm. When you first got into public, uh, the public sphere, you opposed abortion rights, civil unions, and same-sex marriage, uh, campaigning against same-sex marriage. You've since said you were wrong. Yeah. Um, are those still views that are held by people, by members of your family, and do you discuss that with them? Is it uh, difficult to break some those divides? Some of them, yeah. We we love each other very much, and um, you know there are certain things that that we agree to disagree on. Uh, you know, my own personal journey um, has has brought me to a place where. Uh, I'm proud of the record that I have uh, throughout my over six years in Congress, both continuing to fight for and to preserve a woman's right to choose, as well as fighting for equality, you know, for LGBT Americans all across this country. What's it like to change your mind on issues like that? Not a lot of politicians do to the extent that that you seem to have. Or admit it. I think it's important, uh, whether you're talking about these issues uh, or others, um, to be to be open to learning from, you know, your own experiences um, and to be willing to admit when you're wrong. If you're not willing to have those conversations or if you're stuck in a corner saying I'm right and all y'all are wrong, then we have no hope for making progress in the right direction and towards a bright future. Yeah, so here she's going back to her formative years. She, you know, does this thing that a lot of politicians do do uh, that's very important is bringing it back to herself as a child and so in this image you can sort of picture her as she says that my playground was in the ocean and the mountains and she sort of talks about her childhood experiences and you know uh, the big important point that she makes here is that she connects her childhood experience to her adult activism so she talks about how she, you know, started out by, you know, just like cleaning up the ocean and the beaches and then, you know, slowly teaching people about, you know, how to be sustainable and then ties that into how she founded a nonprofit and, you know, uh, tried to uh, clean things up as an adult as well. And so this is important because what she's doing is she's basically taking that and she's building a bridge between her childhood and, you know, uh, the adult world and sort of making the case that, you know, uh, making a difference or, you know, doing anything is, is a part of who she is from, you know, a, a, a deep seated history of behavior. But then also that sort of, you know, childhood naivety um, is what can actually solve, you know, uh, larger real world issues um, on the macro scale. And so this is really important and a great way that she does it. Um, uh, I don't know how it really ties into her candidacy because her thing is all about the military, which isn't very, you know, <laughs> eco-friendly. But uh, but she does, you know, maybe she should be the uh, the green candidate instead here. Yeah, it's amazing how many metaphors and how many how much opportunity this gives her when she starts talking about her as a child and her as a kid. And I understand why um, these types of questions would be asked, you know, of her, you know, they want to find out, okay, well, does that person talk about normal kind of childlike fun things or do they talk about something that might be a little bit scary where we might want to, you know, imply something, you know, from that. But a lot of these politicians really have childhoods where they're going to, 
you know, look at that and they're going to be able to frame it in a certain way. So when she, of course, started up her nonprofit and she has this whole story about this activism of, you know, in the cartoons and, uh, you know, the oily owl and these cartoon characters in which we are brought in, it really only helps her to start to frame everything that she says in that way, you know, a little bit more. Then as they start to get into it and, you know, credit to the moderators for being able to ask her this time a little bit of a deeper question, you know, they say, okay, well, you've been flip-flopping on gay marriage and you once believed this and you, you know, now believe that. And what is it like to change your mind so much on these issues, which is a very direct question. It's basically saying, hey, why are you so wishy-washy? You know, can we really trust you to actually pick a policy point and to really decide who you are and to stay with it? Or are you someone who's going to change your mind every time, you know, something shifts or something changes it? And she just has a really good response to this. It's really an excellent reframe, which is she says, well, you know, I think it's important when you're talking about these issues to be open, to learn from your experiences, because if you don't change your mind, there's just no hope. And, you know, that, of course, hope is Obama's big word. And if you remember back to a previous episode that we did, I think it was actually episode number 16 we did um, on Thanks, Obama. And we talked about Obama's story that he told of him in Disneyland and how his parents took him to Disneyland and how that all played out. And so we hear from, you know, Gabbard, this really good response here on why does she change her mind on these particular issues? That doesn't mean that she's right to change her mind. It just means she has a particular way of framing it. Um, But it was really interesting to hear that. Yeah. So in this next section here, she's going to be talking about a failure that she learned from. Um, And this is really interesting to hear a little bit more of her personal experience and how she manages to tie that into a presidential run still. So we're asking all the candidates this. Is there a time in your life when you failed at something, not an election, and it needn't be something too, too personal, but a failure that you learned from? Um, yeah. Um, and this is personal. Uh, but I, I was married very young. And um, unfortunately, our marriage uh, ended up failing. And I think that we thought that we could do it all and we could have it all. But... Uh, ultimately, my decision to join the military, leave home for, gosh, I was probably gone for about six months during the training, uh, then came home for a few months and then left on an 18-month-long deployment. It was really, really tough uh, for both of us. And, um, you know, I I learned a lot. And unfortunately, our marriage became uh, a casualty of that deployment to Iraq uh, in 2005, came home in 2006. And um, it was, uh, it was a challenge for me and, and my then husband. And I learned a lot of lessons about being practical and balance and, um, doing my best to be able to focus on what I can do and, and to do it well. And, and so I'm grateful now, um, my husband is, is traveling with us on the road. He's a cinematographer. So He's filming all that of our town out. halls and yeah. putting out videos on social media. And and so it's really special and important for both of us that we're able to um, both share in this journey, but also bring our our own um, 
skills and, and, and talents towards this mission that we both really believe in, which is service to the American people. So she's asked, what is a failure that she's learned from? Um, and so she talks about how her first marriage was torn apart by her military service and, you know, how she was had to, you know, leave to go off to war and basic training and all that sort of stuff. And she has this like really pointed moment where she's vivifying this military experience uh, with her marriage where she says, you know, our marriage unfortunately became a, a casualty of the war, um, which is really interesting because, you know, that A is like a pointed statement. You're sort of personifying the marriage. And then B, you uh, are saying something that that a lot of people can relate to because they've had friends or relatives in the military as well. And then you're pointing out, I, I think she said uh, the Iraq war, um, it, which is something that, you know, I think a lot of people think is, you know, a tragedy um, in, in America that, oh, it's a shame that we're, you know, wasting all of this blood and treasure in, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. And so she's able to, you know, make a little bit of a, uh, a, a relatable or, um, endearing statement to the liberals there that I think is really important. And then at the end, she sort of ties that service, uh, as service to the American people as a soldier, and then she pivots to talking about her current husband and how he comes along with her as she's running for president um, as another way to serve the American people. So she's sort of tying these two together as both ways of serving the American people. Um, her service as a soldier is the same as her, you know, being a politician and that, you know, her pursuit of the presidency is somehow noble and honorable. Not, you know, not necessarily saying that it isn't, but, um, it, you know, it's, it's interesting the way she's able to tie those two together. Yeah, she has such a spin on this whole thing where she takes a failure and then she goes into this very, you know, deep story. And remember, now that she brings it up, it's going to be very hard for others to really attack her on this. Because what happens is she has a story about this pre-planned where she doesn't necessarily have to talk about her divorce, but it humanizes her. It makes her into this is someone who is a human being. And it's also a very conservative type of value when they talk about marriage and they talk about this idea of, well, it failed. Okay, it didn't do this. It's as though there is this very high institution for whatever reason that didn't get there. But now let me talk to you about my service in the military. And that's another value that people have. And now let me talk to you about my current husband and the togetherness and the closeness and the family that I have now. And what she is able to do is just take all of that, taking the failure. She doesn't really spend that much time on it. She says it, and some people might automatically, you know, judge her for that, but not a lot of liberals, really, because she's a Democrat. And so if she was running as a um, Republican, then, you know, maybe, but, you know, probably, probably only because she's a woman, you know, there. Obviously, a lot of male candidates, you know, get, get a, a, away with that. Um, but then, you know, she moves it into this whole, you know, wonderful story. So it's really interesting how she's able to take something that is a failure and be able to transform it into something else. And we heard that also earlier when she was talking about her as a kid 
and her how her views on gay marriage have evolved. Now, in this next clip here, what we're going to be hearing is how she's going to be asked a question about finding something to talk about other than politics, and she's going to just turn it into a story about a major political issue. Let's take a listen to this part. So uh, we end our podcast with something called Can't Let It Go, where Ah. we talk about one thing we cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise, we would like you to talk about an otherwise, because I'm pretty sure you can't let go of politics. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, the other day uh, on the 4th of July, after I think our second parade, we stopped at a uh, Dunkin' Donuts, uh, needed to get a cold drink or two. And uh, the woman behind the counter, her name was Leslie. She said, hey, you're Tulsi Gabbard. I get off in 10 minutes. I want to talk to you. She wanted to know more about me, but ultimately she ended up really just sharing more about herself. And she um, started talking about her daughter and how her daughter is a victim of the opioid crisis, how her daughter moved from opioids to heroin, uh, how she served almost four years uh, in prison, how she is now 80 Uh, eight months sober, uh, but how her mother is also struggling with opioid addiction because of chronic pain. And uh, Leslie and I had just met, but at this point she had tears streaming down her face, uh, asking for help, asking for help because their family has been ravaged and torn apart by this crisis like so many people. And um, further highlighting what what we as leaders, what we as a country need to do about this, because there are so many people just like Leslie who are suffering so much as a result of this, both in holding the people responsible, whether they be doctors who are getting kickbacks from big pharma uh, or the opioid, uh, you know, Purdue Pharma, these big companies, but also really dedicating the resources that we need to towards treatment, not treating people like criminals because of this addiction, but actually getting them the help that they need. Representative Tulsi Gabbard, thanks for joining us on the NPR Politics Podcast. Thank you. Great to talk to you guys. Have a great day. And there you have it. She's asked one final question to talk about anything but politics. And what does she do? Boom. (laughs) And you can hear as she's like, starts off with this happy story. And what she's doing with her tone of voice here is really important, is that she is trying to convey to you the emotion of the moment and the issue in general with her voice. So she starts off with this this happy day where it's 4th of July and she's going to go get a drink or two and uh, and she's going to have a wonder and she's happy that somebody, you know, is excited to see her and wants to talk. And then she allows her voice to sort of take that turn like her day did. Also like how, you know, maybe somebody's life before they discover drugs and then once they get caught up in the drugs, then it turns into this somber opioid story. And now it's this, you know, sad tone in her voice. And now, you know, you're being dragged down into this uh, this pit of despair along with her in this story. And she, she's able to illustrate the story with her voice and get the listener to go along emotionally with what she's saying right there. And uh, I thought that that was just so interesting. Yeah, and she's able to hit on those you know major talking points. All right, well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you all for listening. If you like the show and you enjoy the show, please remember to visit our website at www.subliminallycorrect.com. 
And please support us. You can support us on Patreon by donating as much as a cup of coffee to us each month, allowing us to keep this show on the air and keep this good content coming. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. It's at SubliminalPod. And find all the interesting stuff that we are posting there. And we will see you again in two weeks. Thank you.